Okay, good evening again. <clears throat> we are on lecture eight of my notes, so right here, in our study of the book of Romans. And tonight we come to do another study of Romans eight. Those of you who attended the last session, we had a podcast of a gentleman teaching us from the same chapter. But this is such an important chapter, I wanted to go over it myself. Um, because it is a it is a chapter that <clears throat> comes after one of the most difficult passages in in the book, chapter seven, and it continues some of the difficulties, and we want to take a look at it tonight. It's as far as your notes are concerned. This is uh, on section C. If you get the broad outline. Uh, preservation. Here is the outline that we gave you originally. We are now concluding uh, the second major uh, heading in our outline. That's number two, salvation, the wonder of God revealed. That started at chapter 3, verse 21, and it concludes at verse 39 of chapter 8. The question in this section is, how does God save sinners? The answer is in Christ Jesus. And that we'll see that right at the beginning of uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There are three major subheadings under this particular area. First is justification. We are declared righteous in Christ. That's the first section, chapter 3, verse 21, to the end of chapter 5. Second uh, uh, area is sanctification, made holy in Christ. That's chapters 6 and 7. We've completed those. Now we are going on to section C, which is preservation, Keep se kept securely in Christ, chapter 8. So we're dealing with sanctification here now, and I believe that chapter 8 focuses on eternal security security in Christ as a result of our faith in Christ and our being in Christ. That's the key phrase, in Christ. Last time, <clears throat> we looked at one of the most difficult chapters to understand in the Bible. That's Romans chapter 7. I should have said two times ago because I'm referring to the time that I was here. <clears throat> Chapter 7 described an ongoing struggle between a person whose mind has been enlightened concerning the true spiritual nature of the law and who wants to obey this law but finds that the presence of an indwelling sin principle prevents him from doing so. He is always defeated as a result. He's always losing the battle it seems. And so in verse 24, this person cries out for deliverance. Who shall deliver me? from the body of this death. This, of course, of what he calls the law of sin, which is in my members. My members, that should be in verse 23. Paul realizes that he cannot deliver himself. So he comes to the end, or the death of self-effort, to the end of trying to do it himself. He has to look outside of himself for spiritual deliverance but he, because he finds that there's no way that he can obey the law 
and meet the demands that the law requires for him to be holy. And so he cries out, who will deliver me? He has his answer in verse 25. That's how the chapter ends. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now as we found out last time, <clears throat> most if not all believers will identify with this situation. They say, that's me. I'm always struggling to do uh, God's will. But I find I'm always failing. I just cannot seem to be on top of it all the time. It's what many Christians call the elevator life, you know. Up today, down tomorrow. Up today, down tomorrow. Or the mountain peak and the valley life. That kind of a thing. And some people, some Christians look at that as the norm for the Christian. This is what everybody experiences. Therefore, that's the way it's supposed to be. But I think the Bible teaches something different. This is not the norm. And so one of the big problems that we have to decide when we study chapter 7 and chapter 8 is at what time in his life was Paul referring to when he went through this experience? Was it while he was unsaved but under the conviction of sin? unsaved but under the conviction of sin or was it a time when he was saved but living a defeated Christian life as I say most adopt the latter position which we presented last time that's one position we presented last time but today or this evening I want to present and defend the other view the view that he's talking about an unsaved situation but under conviction of sin but let me qualify that. I don't mean unsaved without any contact with the gospel or anything else. I'm referring to the time when perhaps he was exposed to the gospel under conviction and maybe just after he made his profession. And it's in that gray area when he came to Christ but still didn't know exactly how to live the Christian life. I prefer to see it as when he's under conviction and this sort of leads him to place faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to try to present that position uh, because I think it fits in with the whole context of uh, chapters 6, 7, and 8. So this is going to be a tight study tonight. By that I mean you need to look at your Bible and you have to follow along carefully because if you don't, it's not going to make sense to you. I'm going to tell you right now. But you say that's nothing new, all right? <clears throat> uh, but you have to follow along because Paul is reasoning here. He is going along and he's speaking very logically. He's making a point and then basing his next statement upon that point. And if you don't remember some of the points he makes when he gets further down, you can get lost, all right? So be prepared to make notes in your Bible as well because I'm sure it'll help you later on. But as Paul was writing, I believe, this and recounting what happened to him when he came to in contact with Christ, he becomes so full with emotion as he was recounting this inner struggle with sin that he could not help but bursting out, I thank God that I have been delivered by Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee and he was a good one. 
Paul was a man who wanted to serve God and he thought he was serving God even when he was killing Christians. Alright? He was um, committed to pleasing God. And um, when he came under the influence of, of, of Christ, being exposed to his teachings and so on, there was a conflict that came about. Because under the law, he was taught that he had to do these things. But now when he's exposed to Christ, he's suddenly finding out that he cannot do them. He cannot in any way do what the law commands. And so he's frustrated. But when he says, I thank God that I have been delivered by Jesus Christ, I don't think this is a part of his argument. I believe he was, he was describing the problems and the difficulties he's going to go through. And he was so happy that he was delivered that he had to insert it while he was uh, recounting it. You see, before he tells how he became delivered, he says, I thank God that I have been delivered by Jesus Christ. But as I say, I think this is what I call an interjection, not a part of his argument, not a part of his discussion. This is, when it, this is the time when his emotions got the best of him. And I believe that he actually concludes then what he was saying in chapter 7 in this way. I am wretched and I am defeated. Is there anyone who can bring deliverance? So then, that is, to summarize what I have said, I have a desire in my inner self to be a slave to the law of God. But I find that I am also a slave to the law of sin in my old self. That's what some call the old nature. All right? That's his problem. That's what he has been writing about in chapter 7. Well, and since verse 7 of chapter 7. It's a picture of a man under conviction of sin, but who can do nothing in himself to bring about deliverance. Alright? To put it another way, he knows he must be saved, but he's trying to save himself through self-efforts or works. That's what he finds. As a Pharisee, that's what he was doing. But he didn't realize that until he was exposed to the gospel. He eventually finds... That, he that deliverance he was looking for through Jesus Christ our Lord. But at this point, as I said, he became so excited at that deliverance that he had to insert this fact into his presentation right at that time. He was so... It's like shouting hallelujah, you know? When you're expressing something you like, and you say hallelujah. And you haven't explained exactly why it's hallelujah yet, but you know what it is. That's what Paul is doing. But here's the point. <clears throat> and this is the presentation I want to make. Paul is not describing a battle that goes on within the Christian. But within a person under conviction of the Spirit through the Word of God. Now, remember why I'm so careful here is because most people see this differently. They see it as a, as a Christian who cannot do what he wants to do to please God. I'm taking a different position. I'm saying that no, Paul is not a Christian yet, although he's right on the verge. So then, I would say, Paul's deliverance then, and here's the difference, does not refer to victory of the carnal Christian over the old nature. That's the common or traditional view. I believe it refers instead to his reliance upon Christ for justification. Because if you remember... That's what he's been talking about all through these chapters. 
about how he was justified through the death of Jesus Christ. And I think he's still talking about justification, not sanctification. In other words, it refers to the time of his salvation, right at the point, or perhaps more accurately, to the results of his coming to Christ, very early in that Christian life. This is where the struggle comes because of the fact that he was a Pharisee, he was doing all of these things the law commanded, but he realized that he did not get the peace, the satisfaction that he wanted, you see. And he's, he comes to the point where, um, as far as his justification is concerned, he finds that to be in Christ. Nothing what he did, none of the laws he kept, his justification came in Christ and not through works, through the laws. That's what, he's, that's what he is saying as far as I can understand it. Now I realize, as I said, that this is not the traditional way of looking at Romans 7. But I believe that Romans 8 will substantiate that what we have presented is, in fact, Paul's teaching. And that's what we are going to do right now. All right? Are you following me so far? <clears throat> In verses 1 through 4, we have what I call the law of the Spirit. You'll find through this passage, as it started in chapter 7, this reference to the law, the law, the law. And it's repeated in chapter 8. And we have to understand the significance of the law in this verse, or in this chapter. All right, let's begin. Verse 1. Notice what it says. Read that passage, please. Um, just, to, just that one sentence. Let's try it again. <clears throat> Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, those of you who have the King James Bible <coughs> might have this, passage, this uh, sentence in. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Any of your versions have that? Yours have that, right? You've got King James. Right. I think that's the only one who does it. Any other version has it? Yeah. Who do not walk. That's the same thing as who do not live. Right. You've got a King James too on you, King James? Yeah. Now, <clears throat> listen carefully then for those of you who have this in your Bible. Because this could be a little problem for you, if, unless you understand it. Um, this phrase, who do not walk, or who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to spirit, is not um, actually in the better manuscripts, most scholars would say. It's what they call an interpolation. An interpolation is when a, a copyist, a person who copies the, trans, the transcripts. Now remember this. When the New Testament is written, we don't, didn't have printing presses like we have today. Everything is written out by hand. And so you would have someone like me here standing in front of you reading a manuscript and then you would write down what I'm reading you see 
Now you can see right away that there are a lot of possibilities for errors. Number one, depends on how I pronounce a certain word. You might take it for something else. I might say wong and you think it's wrong, you see? Uh, or you could spell it incorrectly, right? Some copiers who have been writing manuscripts for a long time became familiar with manuscripts. So when they would be uh, copying themselves, that is, when they are trying to write down what somebody is reading to them, and when they write it, they would realize, hey, we got to explain that. So they would write an explanation in the text themselves, trying to explain what the person who was repeating it to them, reciting it to them, reading it, was saying. And what has happened through the years, some of those uh, remarks, comments, actually became a part of the text of some manuscripts. Are you following me? Now what it is believed that happened here is that one of the, um, one of the copiers went down to verse 4 the words from verse 4 and placed it up in the chapter in verse 1. Now remember they didn't have verses back then either um, but put it in that part of the manuscript because he felt that's what was being taught. And so his explanation rather than being seen as a footnote actually became a part of the text. You understand what I'm saying? And that's why you'll find in other versions uh, later, other than the King James, they do not have this. And the reason why is because it changes the teaching. This is one place where it actually changes the teaching. Because if you read it this way, listen carefully now. If you read it like this, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period, and stop there. What would you think would be the basis of your no condemnation. Huh? Being in Christ. That's the basis for no condemnation. Now, if you include this other phrase though, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit, what becomes the basis for no justification? How you live. In other words, what you do. You see? Which is just the opposite of what Romans is teaching. And so it's very important for us to see that. Our uh, justification before God comes because we are in Christ. Not because of how we live. It's not because of works. If this were true, Paul's arguing and reasoning in the rest of the chapters and before would be nonsense. Because this is the very thing he's seeking to prove is not the case. You understand? Before I go now, any questions? Because I want you to see that clearly. Especially those of you who have the King James Version. Make a little note to see that. Now this doesn't say that the King James is erroneous here, mind you. It doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with the translations uh, uh, of the manuscripts. It doesn't say that uh, this, the King James Bible is not inspired. Um, that's not the idea at all. Questions?
Oh yeah, we, we know the other manuscripts just don't have it. It isn't, doesn't appear there at all. Huh? We don't have the original. We have no original manuscripts of any, Bible, of any book of the Bible. We only have copies. That's why this particular thing is so important because how they find what is the best uh, manuscript is by getting all of the manuscripts that they can of that one book and look at them and they compare, compare them. And uh, the ones that, have, that are the, the majority of you want that have the same text type of a thing is what they accept as being the real one or true to the original. Okay? But there's no original of any biblical text anywhere to be found. No, that's not right. Any that we have found yet. Right? Now, for those of you who are interested in this, in the next several weeks we can start a new module at Teleos called Bibliology and Hermeneutics. And this is exactly what we're going to be studying. How we got our Bible, how the text came, and so on. All right. Any other questions? As I said, we're going to go slow here because you're going to find some more little difficulties that's important for you to understand and I want you to be able to explain it alright alright let me read the rest of it then however it is now generally concluded that these latter words do not belong to this verse but were in fact interpolated from verse 4 in other words the right position for these words is down in verse 4 and we're going to look at it later if they were genuine that is if they belong to verse 1 then uh, no condemnation before God would be based on practical sanctification and not judicial justification. Practical sanctification is what you and I do. That's the way we live. Another term for it is progressive sanctification. Judicial justification is where God pronounces as being justified before Him. That's a judicial act. In other words, it's legal if you want. Our eternal standing before God would be based on what we do, not on what Christ has done. And according to Paul's teaching in this very book, this cannot be. We are justified by faith, not works. I believe that is why we have a wrong impression as to what Romans chapter 8, that should be, is actually teaching. Because we start off wrong. And I believe we started off wrong because uh, in, in the beginning, of course, the King James Version was the most prominent version and so that teaching came on and so it gives you a whole view of chapter 8 in other words if you accept that last sentence you have an idea that Romans 8 is talking about what you do the way you live sanctification but what we're saying is when you take that out you'll see that the chapter is talking about justification what God has done he's talking about security not victory. See, when we go to Romans 8, and I used to teach this myself for many, many years, this is where we go to find victory. And by the way, you can find it there. It's there. But it's not the main thrust of the chapter. All right? The main thrust of this chapter is what we call today eternal security. But what the theologians call the preserver, the preserver, what's the word? The preservation of the saints. The preservance, not the preservance. Help me, Liz. 
The perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. That's another term for eternal security. All right? All right. As I said, traditionally we have looked at this chapter as teaching victory over the old nature through the indwelling spirit. Now, while although this is the true spiritual doctrine, it is not the main thrust or emphasis of this chapter. The emphasis here is not on victory. And that's what you always hear Romans 8 being emphasized as a source of victory, but rather eternal security. So we're going to look at the verses now to see if we can substantiate this proposition. Any questions? Any questions? All right. Let's take a look at the verse now. I'm going through it very closely. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The therefore indicates the fact of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is based upon the truth Paul has presented previously. That is, prior to chapter 8 and verse 1. In other words, like we always say, we have to look to see what the therefore is therefore in order to understand what comes afterwards. What comes after the words therefore is always based on what comes before the word. Alright? Now, that's why it's important to find out what the therefore is referring to. Most people <laughs> would say that the therefore refers to um, the words just up in chapter 7. That struggle he was talking about and, and, and everything else. But we're going to try to show something different from the text. Now, it's extremely important to see what this therefore refers to. Normally, we would go back to the immediate preceding verse. In this case, that would be verse 25 of chapter 7. And this is what well, this is what verse 25 says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see anything there? Anything stands out to you, for you? Huh? Okay. But what is the therefore? Is it logical? Do you see any connection between thanks be to God through Jesus Christ the Lord, so that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin, there is therefore now no condemnation. Huh? And do that right. And because of that, there's no condemnation. In other words, the connection doesn't make sense. You see the point? The connection doesn't make sense. Verse 1 of chapter 8 is not a logical conclusion from the last verse or verses of chapter 7. In fact, it is not a logical deduction from the entire chapter. 
on what previous teaching then does verse 1 of chapter 8 draw upon for its conclusion that there's no condemnation? I believe the answer is very clear when you look at the whole thing. It is the closing verses, not of chapter 7, but of chapter 5. Two chapters back. Now, go to chapter 5, and let's look at the closing verses. Read this for me. On the, uh, it's probably best if you read it off the screen. Now, remember, this is the, these are the concluding verses of chapter 5. Would you read that, please? Now go over to chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see the connection there? Do you? There's a solid connection. And so the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 8 goes back to the end of chapter 5, not chapter 7. Because in chapter 8, Paul is still talking about justification by faith. He's not talking about victory. See, that's the point. He's talking about justification by faith, which takes us out of the old Adamic self, that's what they call the old nature, and places us in the new or the last Adam self, Jesus Christ. Justification is what places us before God as right, just. We are in Christ now, not in Adam anymore. That's justification. <coughs> Romans 6 and 7 might be best understood in their context if they were put in brackets. Or, in other words, you know when you want to do an explanation, you're writing about something and you want to clarify something, so you put them in brackets? The, bracket, the, the, the items in the brackets have no real bearing, no, I shouldn't say no real bearing, but it isn't part of the argument, it is just for the clarification. So what you want to do is, after you finish with your clarification, you pick up from the last word you wrote before you place the first bracket, you pick up that after the last bracket. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's something you put in parenthesis. And I believe that's how you have to look at chapter 6 and 7. I'll tell you why. Chapters 6 and 7 represent added explanation to misconceptions which might arise from the truth already stated, not new truth as such, but implications from the doctrine of justification by faith, which was Paul's major emphasis in chapters 4 and 5. In other words, Paul is talking about justification by faith in 4 and 5. Now something happens though as chapter 6 begins. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In other words, he's, 
going to deal with a possible misconception that could arise from his teaching. Because the idea is, listen, if I am justified by faith and not works, then I could just go on sinning. Is he? Why? Because the more I sin, the more God's grace is manifested. Is he? Paul says, no, 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 that's wrong. And so he saw of odds and he adds an what I call an addendum or an appendix to correct that misconception. And I believe that addendum goes from chapter 6 to chapter 7. He's trying to show why you cannot go on sinning so grace might increase. When he finishes that at the end of chapter 7, he comes back to what he was dealing with in chapter 5, and he picks it up in chapter 8, which is justification by faith. And those who are in Christ have no condemnation because of that. Is that clear? Any questions? Because you're going to see more of this close argument. If you don't get this, you're going to get lost. All right? All right. Paul comes back to the matter of justification by faith in chapter 8 by summarizing what he has said in chapters 4 and 5. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what he taught in chapters 4 and 5. He gave this addendum. Now he wants to pick up where he left off before he gave it. So he summarizes what he did in 4 and 5. And this is the summary. There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Paul is still talking about deliverance from the wrath of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's not talking about victory over sin. He's talking about deliverance from the wrath of God. Notice now this sphere or location where this state of no condemnation is found. It is found where? In Christ Jesus. Now, again, as I said, this is one of the most important phrases in the book. In Christ Jesus. That's where no condemnation is found. All right? No condemnation is not found in, obe <coughs> in obeying the law. It's found in Christ. And you only in Christ get in Christ by faith, not by works. That's, whole, that's all of Paul's argument. Being in Christ for the believer is just like Noah and his family being in the ark trying to illustrate this the waters of judgment condemn all those who are outside the ark but all those who are in the ark are safe the Bible says that God closed Noah and his family inside he locked the door as it were they were safe because they were locked in the ark by God himself the same is true with those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation they are locked in Christ they are placed in Christ. He is the place of safety from the judgment of God. This is the position of all true believers. And here's the important point. It does not depend upon our practice, what we do. But it depends upon the work of Jesus Christ. And so the question, of course, for all of us, are you in Christ? Are you in the ark of safety? This is the only possible place this is only possible, rather, if you place your faith in Christ as Savior. And that's the message that Paul is presenting here. Any questions or comments?
questions or comments? I, do you understand it? You do? All right. Go on to verse 2 now. As I said, this can be slow. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Those are some glorious words. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And boy, that's, there's one place you can place in here. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Now, here's the reason for what was stated in chapter, in verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, now please get this, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, according to this text, what was holding us captive? What? Don't make the come on, come on. It's right there. The law of sin and death. What freed us? The law of the spirit of life. Now, please get those terms. These are precious terms. Wonderful, wonderful truth. Paul is now further explaining. You, you see throughout this book, Paul explains his explanation. He explains his explanation. Paul is now further explaining how believers are freed or released from the judgment of God. Every phrase and term in this verse are important to the true meaning and interpretation of this passage. That's why we can look at them. Because remember now, this is the Word of God, right? Right? And so we want to study the Word of God. And so let's look at it carefully. First, the law... <coughs> excuse me. You have to excuse me for coughing. I hope I can finish this. First we have the phrase, the law of the Spirit. What does this mean? Friends, I may ask you something. Look up from your nose. If I were to ask you right now, what is the law of the Spirit means, what would your reply be? Faith? Salvation? Grace? Most of us say we don't know. True or false? But this is one of the most important statements for the Christian to understand. Because this is what has set us free. Law here means a principle. Or what's another word for principle? Law. <laughs> I'm trying to see. They're the same thing. We normally talk about principle, you know. It's based on this principle, that principle. That's what a law is, a principle that determines something else. All right? Now, sometimes some laws, some principles are automatic. Once certain, certain things happen, it follows. For instance, uh, the law of gravity. Right? The law of gravity. 
If I throw this something up in the air, what happens? It's coming back down. Why? Huh? Right. That law falls in place automatically. Isn't that right? It falls in place automatically. And this is what you have to see when we go through here. Certain things happen automatically once the beginning sequence begins. Then it just automatically... For instance, the Bible says... Well, you hear it today in different terms. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, most of the time you hear that today only about giving money, sowing a seed and all that. But it has to do with your lifestyle. If you sin, you're going to reap sin. You see what I'm saying? If you do righteousness, righteousness is the result. Once the principle is put into motion, it comes about. All right. What does this mean? Law here means spirit. Spirit of life means the spirit who produces life. The spirit from where, who has the source of life. The spirit who has to do with life and is characterized by life. The law of the spirit of life. All right? So he's talking about the source of life, the origin of life. The spirit has to do with life. It means, therefore, the principle that has to do with the life-giving spirit. Now notice what it says. This life-giving spirit, the law that is within this life-giving spirit, has set me free. Why? <coughs> That's the part of who he is. That's the principle. He has set me free. Now, two things are noted here. First, the tense of the verb set. Now, that's why I'm saying this can be a little practical. You're, you're, you're learning tonight. Set here is a verb. It is what is called in the Greek, in the original language, the aorist tense. The aorist tense. This tense expresses something that happened in the past, but is still true at the present time. It didn't stop happening when it happened the first time. It didn't just start and stop. It started, but it continues. The effects of it continues. That's the error's tense. All right? It is a once-for-all transaction or event. The effects of it continues. Through Christ Jesus, the principle that has to do with the life-giving Holy Spirit has forever set me free. And once he has done it, it continues to be done. I am still free. You see the point? He set me free. And because I am in him, I am still free. You get that? You know what he even say? Hallelujah, shout. It's all right. This is a glorious truth. The spirit of God, the spirit of life, he set me free. And that continues because I'm in Christ. You see? Beautiful truth here. All right. St. Joel, don't get excited. Let's go on here. Huh? Second. So he set us free and this freedom continues. Who has been set free? Now, in the King James Version again, I'm not picking on the King James, but I'm just trying to show you that sometimes we need clarifications. The King James Version says, that is set me free, right? And where I got the King James? 
Anybody else's version says, set me free. What does your version have? It said, you free. And that's the proper translation. Paul isn't talking only about himself. Paul is talking about all believers. He's saying, he set you free. Referring to all who is in Christ. So once you are in Christ, you've been set free. You've been set free. Paul is stating a general spiritual principle that is applicable to all believers. He's not simply citing a personal case, although it was also true of him as a believer in Christ. In other words, he is no longer referring to his own personal experience as he did in chapter 7. He's now stating truth that is applicable to all believers. In other words, once you are in Christ, you have automatically you've automatically become a part of that life-giving spirit who has set you free you see set you free now next question comes up though thirdly what is the believer in Christ set free from what are we freed from notice what Paul says we are free from the law of sin and death now this is another principle this is another principle. Sin automatically leads to what? Death. You can't get away. Sin automatically leads to death. That's the principle. A common mistake is to equate the law of sin and death with the law of sin which is in my members in chapter 7. This is what verse 23 of chapter 7 says. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. You notice how many laws you got there? Uh, in laws in the members of my body, law of my mind, law of sin at work. Paul talks a lot about these laws and these principles. But he's using a phrase here now about this, the, the law of sin which is in my body. Is this law of sin and death the same as the law uh, uh, of sin at work within my members? Some make that uh, correlation, say they're the same. But we're saying they're not. And you've got to understand that. You see, one of the dangers we make, one of the mistakes we make, is that we take similar words and give it the same meaning similar terms and give it the same meaning you cannot do that and this is one case let me show you why <clears throat> if they meant the same thing if these two laws were one and the same then Paul would be saying that the believer has been forever and completely set free or liberated from the old self or the old nature and we know that is not true he would also be teaching that that is the basis for justification being set free from our nature but that is not true this would mean that he is teaching what is referred to as entire sanctification or sinless perfection. In other words, if you see this law, of, uh, the law of sin and death as being the same in chapter 7 verse 23, the law of sin at work within my members, you would then be teaching sinless perfection because you'd be saying that you'd be free from everything that caused you to sin. And Paul is not teaching that. So therefore, we've got to find out exactly what is the law of sin and death. 
Over here, it was the law of sin. It didn't mention anything about death. Now let's see why. <clears throat> if this were true also, then his words later on in chapter 8 would be a lie, not just a contradiction. Notice what it says. Uh, we're going to be looking at these verses later in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nat nature, what happened? You will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. See? So these two things are different. What then does the body of sin and death refer? It's not just the law of sin. It's not just the law of death. It's the law of sin and death. Why? Well, let's look at it. We believe it must refer to that which condemned us. This is so because Paul is explaining why those in Christ are not condemned. Why aren't we condemned because we're in Christ? It is because, listen carefully now, through Christ, the principle which has to do with the life-giving Holy Spirit has once for all delivered us from the law of sin and death. Notice now, this is the conclusion. The law of sin and death must therefore refer to that which caused our condemnation. Because that is what we are freed from. But it is not only the law of sin, nor is it only the law of death. It is the law of sin and death. That is what caused our condemnation. And that is what the Spirit has set us free from. Now, any questions on that? Yes, sir. Entire sanctification. Complete sanctification or entire sanctification. People teach that. Those in the Wesley tradition. Who, who are in the Wesley tradition? Sinless perfection. Sinless. Entire, sin, sin, entire sanctification means that you living beyond sin. You cannot sin. And there are Christians who teach that Christians cannot sin. Those in, in a part of the Wesleyan tradition. Who is in the Wesley tradition? Methodist. Not all of the mind, but some of them do that. That's where we get the holiness teaching from. Alright? Now, what law then is Paul referring to? In Paul's case here, it is the law of Moses. Here's what he says in chapter 5 verse 13. Before the law was given, that's the law of Moses, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there's no law. In other words, sin was imputed or charged when the law was given. In other words, if you don't have a law that says thou shalt not, you can't charge you with doing it. But once you put up a sign thou shalt not and you do it, you could be charged with it. Sin resulted in death. Now, go to verse 20. He says, 
the law was added. This is chapter 5. So that the trespass might increase. Sometimes we miss the truth of these words. What does that mean? The law, this has given us a reason for the law now. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. What's that saying? That's right. It would become more evident. It would stand out. It would be on the line. It would be underscored. You see? The law was added so that I could know I'm a sinner. That's what it's saying. And I might, that's what, see, that's what happened to Paul. When Paul started to realize this. Now, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 says, Once I was alive, this is Paul, once I was alive apart from the law. He had no law, so he was living free, man. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. All of a sudden, the law told me what I was doing was bad. I'm going to die because of it. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Remember we looked at that in chapter 5 where it says that there's something in the law that really encourages the sin. Remember use the illustration of the little children. Don't touch that cake. Now what do you think that little child can do? I say that all the time because I remember, uh, I remember an, an incident with the girls. They were about four years old. We have a birthday party for them. And we had this cake on the table. And I think it was Sandy first. She went and she did I said, don't do that. Don't touch that cake. Guess what she did? She did it again. Sandy, don't touch that cake. She kept doing it. No matter how many times I told her, she kept doing it. And no, I could spank her to death. She would still do it. Now, if I had, didn't tell her that, she probably wouldn't have touched it again. But Paul is saying that there's something in the law that tells us not to do something that actually encourages us to do it. You see? And that's what he's talking about here. All right? That's the principle. There's something in it. There's a principle. And once it gets working, you can't stop it. Paul has gone to great lengths to show that the law used by sin, notice that, the law used by sin produces both sin and death. See, now this is Paul's point now. He's bringing these together, sin and death. So now, here in chapter 5, he calls it the law of sin and death. Not only the law of sin, not only the law of death, but the law of sin and death. They're now brought together. One leads automatically to the other. So putting all of this together, we get this reading <coughs> in a paraphrase. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through him, the Holy Spirit, who imparts life, has forever liberated them from the law that produced sin and death. And once we are free from that law, that principle, it doesn't work with us anymore. It doesn't work with us anymore. We are free from that law. For instance, you take up a ball and throw up in the air, it falls down. You get a plane worth 400,000 tons and you put an engine on it, what happens? It flies. 
right? It's freed from that law. You see, that's what happens to us when we are freed from the law of sin and death. That has no impact on us. Sin does not lead to death anymore because we are free from that law. We are free from that prince. It doesn't work with us. You see, it doesn't work. No condemnation anymore. No co the law of sin does not work with us because we've been freed from it. Did you get that? This is beautiful. It's important to note that this is referring to justification though, not sanctification. And that is the point. That is the theologians argue with here. He's talking about justification. It has to do with salvation, not victory over the old self. That's normally how it's preached. What I'm saying is, that's not what it's teaching. In other words, this is what we call a gospel or evangelistic message, not a victorious, uh, a victorious life message. This is telling us what happens when we place faith in Christ, not what happens when we have victory over sin in our life. There's a different, a different emphasis here. <clears throat> now, to show that this is the correct interpretation of these verses, look at verses 3 and 4 now. This is back to chapter 8. For what the law was powerless to do, now this is another, it's amazing how we read these verses and don't understand them. But they have so much power in them. Listen, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. By sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering. And so, he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Man, now that's a lot of meat in there. Alright? But do you understand it? You see? Let's go through it again. I hope you could understand. Peace, peace. Paul again explains his explanation because he knows he can understand this thing by looking at it the first time. First of all, notice that Paul himself explains what the law of sin and death is in verse 2. It's the law of Moses. He, he says that clearly. He says the law was powerless to do something because it was weakened by the old sinful self. Now, first question is, what was it the law could not do? What was it the law had no power to do? Now again, you'll find that the traditional saying is, it is it, some say it is condemning sin in sinful man, as we have in verse 3. In other words, it says the law couldn't condemn sin in sinful man. But I, can't, I don't believe this is true. Because if there's one thing Paul has said over and over about law, is that it did in fact condemn sin in sinful man. Verse 20 of chapter 3. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So sin condemns man for his sin. So that cannot be. Now let's go on. What then was it that the law was powerless to do? The answer is found in verse 4. Beginning. 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Glorious passage. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Now remember, the in us are those who are in Christ. So he's saying, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in those who are in Christ. This is the reason for our justification. What it is? To fulfill the righteousness required by the law. The law demanded a standard of holiness that it did not provide assistance to bring about on the part of the sinner. In other words, it demanded something but didn't give any help to bring it about. Listen now. The law... <coughs> the law was powerless to produce in the believer what it demanded of the believer. And see, that's the frustration Paul felt. What did the law demand? It demanded righteousness and holiness. Why couldn't the law produce righteousness and holiness? Because it was weak through the flesh. Now it must be it's important to understand whose weakness is being spoken about here and whose flesh. <coughs> He's saying it was weak through the flesh because man by nature was unable to meet its standards. The law was demanding something of, the ma of man and women, of course, of people, that they could not meet in themselves. They couldn't do it. It's like saying, Alan Lee, run 10 miles tonight. I can't do that, man. I mean, you could give me all kind of laws you want. I just can't do that. That's what the law is saying. Be holy, but man could not be holy. Now notice this now. Here's the important part, because we miss out on this. We blame the law for a lot of things we shouldn't blame the law for. And this is one. It was not the weakness of the law, but it was the weakness of human nature, soul, and the sin. It was the weakness of human nature. It was the weakness of our being in the old man under the condemnation of Adam. That's why Paul was so frustrated and so wretched. He, because of sin in him, could not fulfill the law as he desired to do and which was commanded by it. And see, that's our frustration. Many, many times. We'll talk about it later. Now, Paul says, God did what the law could not do. How? By sending his own son. How? In the likeness of sinful flesh or man. Now this is another verse that many people misinterpret as an offering for sin. Now let's look at this. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh or, or man as an offering for sin. Notice first God took the initiative. He sent his own son. God always takes initiative when it comes to salvation. Man is always the reactor or responder. God is always initiator 
when it comes to salvation. Notice also the very important qualifier. God sent his own son. This is to distinguish him from all other sons of God. There are other individuals who are called sons of God in the Bible. But none is called God's own son. Only Jesus Christ. Jesus is the unique son. It shows the degree of God's love for the condemned sinner. He was willing to give his best for the least. Beautiful picture here. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Now, let's go on. He sent him in the likeness of sinful man. This is referring to the incarnation. Christ taking upon himself human nature, but apart from sin. Christ taking upon himself human nature, but without sin. Because if Christ had taken on man's sinful nature, he would have been just as weak in the flesh as those he came to save. And he would not have been able to do what he did. But he did not take on our sin, although he took on our humanity. He experienced the weakness or the infirmities of man. We're going to talk about that later on in chapter 8. He experienced the infirmities or weakness of man, such as hunger, thirst, exhaustion, and so on. But he did not take on him the sinful nature of man. Notice, he was sent to be a sin offering. This is speaking of the cross. This is the atonement. He came to satisfy the demands of the law against the sinner. You've heard the phrase that John uses, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. This is what he's talking about. One who appeases, one who satisfies God through his death. He took the sinner's place in death. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is again beautiful. Now my voice was so bad, I'll be shouting at you tonight. But, so you all should be thankful that I got a bad voice. Notice this. The sting of death is sin. You see, the next time you all read these verses, I hope you all will read it with a more fuller meaning here. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is what? The law. In other words, death gets its power from sin. Sin gets its power from the law. That's why we had to be first delivered from the curse of the law. Christ came as a man under the curse of the law to redeem those who were under the condemnation of that law. Why? To free us from that condemnation by being stung by the sting of death for us. He freed us from that condemnation by being stung with the sting of death for us. That's what it means when it says here, he condemned sin in sinful man. He took the sting of death on our behalf. Now, let's look at this phrase, condemning sin in sinful man. Now, if you have the NIV, I really believe the NIV gives us a wrong translation. Their translation implies that sin was condemned in the sinner. Now, please listen to this carefully. This is so important. But that is not what Paul is saying. 
It isn't saying that sin was condemned in the sinner. Paul is saying that Christ as a man condemned sin. Alright? He condemned sin in his own human body. And so condemned in verse 1 as well means to pass judgment upon or to punish. It does not mean to destroy or to annihilate. The tense here, condemn, implies that it is a once for all judgment. In other words, once it was done, it was completed. When did this happen? When did he condemn sin in his flesh? Paul tells us in chapter 6 and verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ, with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with or be rendered powerless, so that you should no longer be slaves to sin. Christ then, as a man, without sin, condemns sin by his death on the cross. His death is now charged to our account. That's justification. And that's what Paul is talking about. This is wonderful. This is glorious truth. Any questions or comments? Huh? No questions, no comments? All right, let me finish this up, then maybe we'll talk. I think I might let you go early tonight. Now, why did Christ do this? And isn't this some wonderful thing that he did? Why are believers in Christ justified? Paul gives us the answer in verse 4 of chapter 8. Here is, the, here is why you were justified in Christ. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Now we have the right place for these words. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. This is where sanctification comes in. In other words, don't get the idea when you hear the phrase, we're not under the law, that we're not supposed to keep the law. That's not true. According to this, that's the reason why you're justified. That's the reason why you're justified. In fact, we're the only ones who can keep the law. Because we've been set free from the law, the principle that prevented us from doing it. Justification leads to sanctification. Sanctification is the idea of growing daily into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified. To become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what we are going through now while we wait for Christ to come. And we're going to see that when we get down to verses 28, 29, 30. When we talk about whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, and all of those things. We are in this process of sanctification. And if you cannot see in your life a daily and a gradual growth in the Christ-likeness, you better check to see whether or not you're being the faith. Because sanctification, growing in the Christ-likeness, 
is a law of the Christian life. It's a principle. If you place faith in Christ, you've got to automatically begin to come like Christ. Now, it might be slow in some and others, but, but you're still moving in that direction. Justification leads to sanctification, not, versus, not vice versa. In other words, sanctification does not lead to justification. That's the idea we get when we say we have to keep the law or we have to do certain things. You ever heard people say, well, I want to get saved, but I got to clean up my life first. You see, that's what they're saying when they're trying to be sanctified in order to be saved. You can't do that. You got to be saved in order to be sanctified. We are saved in order to live holy lives. We do not live holy lives in order to be saved. If this were true, none of us would ever be saved. Paul's frustration and wretchedness in chapter 7 was a result of his trying to do this very thing. This is what Paul's cry of deliverance in verse 24 of chapter 7 refers to. The redeemed, justified sinner at that point is now able to fulfill the, righteous dem the righteousness demanded by the law. How? Through the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, the one who set us free. Let me just finish this. This last phrase in verse 4 of chapter 8 is a crucial one in understanding the truth Paul is teaching in this chapter. It defines two kinds of people he is concerned with and whom he describes in detail in verses 5 through 8. Now again, this is where a lot of confusion is done in preaching. Some say he's talking about the carnal Christian and the spiritual or victorious Christian. Others say he's talking about all unregenerate persons in general and all regenerate persons in general. The contrast is very clear, is very clearly made in these verses. And so we want to look at these in detail. This is who he is talking about. Because if you preach that he's talking about the carnal Christian rather than the unsaved, or vice versa, you could be teaching or understanding something that is wrong. So we have to understand who he is talking about in this passage. Questions? Any questions? Comments? You learn anything? Do you understand anything? Carnal. She asked, "What do you mean by carnal Christian? How do you answer that?" What is a carnal Christian? Sinful Christian? Huh? Fleshly Christian? Do you understand what he's saying? Fleshly Christian is a carnal Christian. What is the fleshly Christian Christian now is the next answer? Eh? I mean the next question. What is the fleshly Christian? Don't now don't tell me a carnal Christian. Huh? Somebody living according to the world standards. Only the world standards? Okay, one foot in, all right. What else? How many of you feel like you're a carnal or fleshly Christian? Oh boy, get personal now, eh? 
Paul, in, now you should, I, I dealt with that in detail in 1 Corinthians, you know. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul calls a carnal, fleshy Christian is a Christian who say they're Christian, but living like the devil or living like an unsaved person. When he says a fleshly Christian, he's talking about a Christian who, or a person who does not have the spirit. We're going to see later on that the basic definition of a Christian is what? What is the basic definition for a Christian? That's one who has the spirit of Christ. That's basic. If you don't have the spirit, you just well forget everything else. All right? So Paul is saying, if you have the spirit, then you cannot be walking or living as though you don't have him. A carnal Christian, a fleshly Christian, is a Christian who's living as though the Spirit of God does not live in him. He's living like an unsaved person. That's what he's saying. That's why there's some theologians who don't believe there's such a thing as a carnal Christian. They don't believe you can. If you're carnal, you're not a Christian. You see? And some people believe that idea of carnality is misconceived. And I am amongst those. But anyway, I won't go that area right now. Well, I think I explained that just now, how there's, there's something uh, within the law that really encourages us to sin um, that's why it becomes what we call the principle of, of uh, sin and death it becomes automatic uh, remember we were talking about Cindy and Sandy for instance if I didn't tell them to do that uh, they probably wouldn't have but because I told them to do it they would do it there's something in law that causes people to sin and that's what Paul is talking about there that's how it was used by the law, you see, to bring that about. Well, right, but uh, exactly, that's where the principle comes into play. In other words, when you go to James, James talks about how, uh, how sin has its birth, its origin. Lust from outside, you know, and we respond to it. But in order for any temptation from out there to affect us, there must be something that attracts it in here. You see? And that's what Paul is uh, teaching here. There's something within the law that brings about this reaction that leads to death. You see? That leads to, lead to death eventually. And that's why this is so important to understand because... You, you see right away that once it goes into motion, it's got to go all the way through unless it's interrupted by the grace of God. You see? Unless it's interrupted by the grace of God. All right. Any other questions, comments? Because I think I wanted to finish up, but I, I'm going to hold up because my throat is beginning to hurt a little bit. And I don't want to make it worse. Any other questions or comments? Really now, did you learn anything tonight? 
I gotta give it, you gotta turn the cameras around here sometime and point here. No comments? No questions? How many of you all have done a real study of Romans 8 before? Well, I encourage you to do it again. This is really a tremendous chapter. We haven't really, this is just the beginning. When we get into the other section of it, because it's 39 verses. And um, you'll see how all of this leads into the assurance of salvation. It begins with no condemnation, verse 1. And in verse 39, it ends with what? No separation. No condemnation, no separation. And in between, they tell us the how that has happened. We're looking at no condemnation. Later on, we can get into no separation. And I tell you, it's going to be some wonderful, wonderful truths there. Pardon? All right, if no questions or comments, we'll close out at this time. All right, Pastor Jerry, would you close in a word of prayer? <coughs> Please.